You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skabitsky. This week, we're honored to have Dr. Wendy Chung, a leading expert in precision medicine and the genetic basis of autism. Dr. Chung's groundbreaking research at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School is revolutionizing healthcare for children with autism and related conditions. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Chung. Thanks for having me. Really glad to be here. Well, we're we're happy to have you along for the journey and, and to be able to discuss, I mean, everything from the genetics to where we should be looking and how we can contribute as we go along. But one thing I love to be able to do, just because this is such a passion-driven field, is to get a little bit of a background in what sparked your interest and what drove you to dedicate so much time and energy into the field of autism. Yeah. So um, my journey starts a long time ago. Um, thankfully, I don't look as old, hopefully, as I am. Um, but as I started this in high school, even, and then into college, uh, I started out studying a condition called phenylketonuria. I was a biochemist and uh, or a biochemistry major. And phenylketonuria is one of these what we call inborn errors of metabolism that can be associated with autism and neurodevelopmental disorders. Um, but it's um, quite remarkable and important that by early diagnosis of that condition, you can make what are significant adjustments to the diet. So it's not just, you know, like a little bit of low-fat diet. It's it's a real medical diet, but you can avoid uh, specifically phenylalanine, one of the amino acids that for those individuals can lead them to have problems with their brain developing. There are toxic things that built up and do damage to their brain. And so it was for me a really important use case of how to be able to make early diagnosis and to be able to initiate treatment. Um, Within that, it really started me on a journey where I became and devoted my career to genetics and to um, specifically trying to diagnose conditions so that we could be able to support individuals to be the best version of themselves, the healthiest, happiest people. Um, And within this, as I started my training and became a medical geneticist, Uh, many of the patients that I saw were individuals with autism. And so um, it sort of, it comes together. I see see and saw many types of patients, but again, a a large number of them had autism. And so as I got more and more sort of deeper into the understanding, I realized how heterogeneous it was. In other words, everyone wasn't the same. And as I started thinking about that, and, and I wasn't alone, many other people had recognized the same thing. Um, I would have parents come to me all the time, especially with young children with autism, and ask me about, you know, what would the future be like, try and prognosticate and try and, importantly, um, what can I do now and what can I do to support my child and what things are going to help them to be able to grow up happy and healthy. And with that, it became clear to me that, number one, um, our understanding was was thinner than I would like it to be, um, that we were making guesses, Um, not to say that, you know, we don't always try and make informed guesses, but the guesses were not as informed as I would have liked them to be. We didn't have as much information. We couldn't provide as much useful guidance. And um, within that, in the very early days when I started studying this, to be quite frank, we didn't know what was associated with autism. Um, You know, there were lots of theories, but not as much data. And so it was in those early days that, and again, I being a geneticist, it won't surprise you to say that we tried to use our tools that were available and that developed over time. 
to understand the the biology of the brain, really. Um, and with this, I want to emphasize that because of the heterogeneity and because of the lack of understanding, we didn't really know and still have many gaps in terms of understanding how the brain works. We fundamentally needed to understand the molecules, the cells, how it changed over time, how it developed. We, we just didn't really have firm ground to stand on to be able to understand. And genetics has this wonderful way of being able to uh, not be biased by any particular scientist and what their agenda is or what their opinion is or what their favorite hypothesis is. It just is very data-driven. And so in that way, one can understand the fundamental biology of how the brain works for whether it's someone with autism, someone with epilepsy, um, someone who um, may have uh, ADHD or attention problems. Um, you can simply follow the data to understand those conditions better. And that I think has been incredibly important to the field to be able to help our understanding. Um, it hasn't, and I, and I take this sort of feedback very much to heart, just because we understand the biology doesn't immediately translate instantaneously to be able to think about supports and improving supports. That takes mm -hmm. additional time to do that. And in some ways, doesn't always depend on understanding the biology. I think in some ways, there are ways that we simultaneously try and move the fields uh, forward in terms of behavioral biology, developmental biology, genetics, genomics, other things, um, but all to the same end in terms of being able to support individuals and their families. Yeah, but it's definitely data that's needed in order to help us progress. I mean, what would be some of the implications that you're able to be able to pull from this? So if I were a family and I'm I'm saying, okay, so there's a geneticist out there and, and they're looking at all this information and autism is so broad and yet they're able to pull out some information. Are they are they able to give me maybe some implications on, you know, lifestyles that you said diet? Is it are they gonna hopefully in the future give me implications on treatment? I mean, are they gonna give me implications on Prognosis, what, what are the implications a family might hope for in the future as the data set builds, as you get more information? Yep, uh, great question. So one of the things that we realized is that, as I said, uh, autism is not one condition. Um, and the things that contribute to it in terms of the biology, those differences are, they number probably in terms of the hundreds of molecules, hundreds of proteins, hundreds of things that contribute to this. There's some individuals, about 10% of individuals who have autism, that we can currently recognize a single genetic factor that seems to be the major contributor. So it's not 100%. Um, it's not 100% because I don't think the answer is that 100% of people have a single major genetic contributor. And part of it is that even for people who do, we don't recognize it yet. We're still learning. We're still understanding. On the other hand, for those 10% or so that do, that can have the implications I'll describe in just a second. But given the heterogeneity, I appreciated very early on that we needed to have, in terms of studies of individuals with autism, um, not small studies of 100 people or even 200 or even 1,000, but we were going to need to have very, very large studies. So we started uh, a program called SPARC, Simons Foundation Powering Autism Research for Knowledge. Um, and that's a program that I care very much about being able to increase access that people who both want to participate in research 
and people who want to be able to reciprocally get something back from research, that we have this available to as many people as possible. So we set this up um, in two different ways. One is to be able to uh, join online so that we hoped that that would decrease the barriers because many people have a smartphone and some sort of connectivity where they can get online. But we also had set up 31 clinical sites scattered around the country to be able to have individual clinical autism centers of excellence that could help people if they wanted to enroll. And so people who might find it just easier to be able to work with someone to do it, they didn't have to navigate and do it all on their own. It's not that hard to do on your own, but still we wanted to have people to help do that. So I'll just give you one example uh, or a couple examples of how this actually has uh, affected individual SPARC participants. And um, I do, for those 10% of people, sometimes uh, one of our first families taught me something very important and, and they said, you know what, it, having that genetic information, it changes everything and it changes nothing all at the same time. And it was really just a very profound statement to me that as she said it, as this mother said it, I realized she was right. It, um, she had an adult daughter, still has an adult daughter with autism and intellectual disabilities. And the combination of those things as an adult, um, it's clear in terms of, uh, you know, limitations that she has. Um, and, uh, you know, at this point, sort of she is um, fully grown yeah, in terms of being an adult. And so having a label to put on it um, I do think helped them understand what they'd been seeing and that they weren't alone. It gave them immediately a community that had the same condition that they could relate to. They could help each other. Um, they could sort of put things back in context. And I know this may sound silly, um, but for the mothers especially, many of the things that we give back are genetic conditions, but they weren't inherited genetic conditions. So in other words, they were genetic differences that started brand new with the individual with autism, who again, uh, oftentimes has pretty significant intellectual disabilities or epilepsy or other neurodevelopmental, um, pretty serious conditions. Um, but those de novo events mean that they didn't get passed down from a mother or father. And I think many of the moms out there um, are, even though they may not say it out loud, they're always wondering why, is what I'll just say. The why question of why did this happen? What caused it? Was it something I did during the pregnancy? Was it something I didn't do during the pregnancy? Um, you know, something I could have done or should have done. And there's a little bit of guilt that's, again, not hopefully in many people, but I do know just from people telling me this frequently, there's a little bit of guilt that sits back there. And by knowing the answer to that why question and knowing that it wasn't their fault, it just sort of, I don't know, there's a weight that comes off of their shoulders. Um, so that's not anything concrete in terms of what I call news you can use. It's not like you do anything with that information, but it still is part of that. It means everything and it means nothing all at the same mm -hmm. time. There have been a couple, uh, or there have been instances within Spark though, where it did make um, what I would call very significant differences. So uh, I had mentioned phenylketon urea when I first started introducing my journey. Um, I was sad, um, but happy all in the same time that we identified an individual in Spark, actually a teenager that had phenylketonuria, still has phenylketonuria. Um, and the reason I say sad uh, and happy at the same time is uh, he was undiagnosed. So he actually, unlike 
most other children who get diagnosed in the United States as newborns with phenylketonuria or PKU and then immediately start on this diet and avoid autism and avoid uh, the intellectual disabilities that go with that, he didn't get the benefit of that. And so even though we could make his diagnosis as a teenager, he, he lost a window of opportunity, a, a window of prevention. And um, we could treat him now and he is being treated now and, and it, it, it decreases a little bit uh, in terms of some of the issues, but it doesn't reverse it. It doesn't stop the sort of revert in terms of the way his brain developed. And although he's still obviously a wonderful, wonderful person, um, you know, there are things that he can't do that if this had been diagnosed earlier, he might've been able to do. So that's just one example. Um, the other one that comes to mind, and it you know literally is just because I was speaking with the family this last weekend about this, is I returned another result in Spark in which the individual, um, the genetic finding explains their autism, but it's also associated with a medical risk that the family never would have been thinking about, a medical risk for a rare type of uh, growth, a tumor uh, growth that can be associated with that, that if one knows to screen for it it's able to catch it early and to be able to take care of it um, so that this child won't grow up in terms of having longer term issues with this from a medical point of view. And not to say that happens thankfully for most individuals with autism or most individuals who have a genetic diagnosis that we give back, but there are enough of these circumstances that um, there can be meaningful information that is news you can use, information that immediately by knowing this information, all of a sudden it takes this from autism not otherwise specified to a very specific genetic subtype where you're, you're, you turn left, you know, you actually absolutely start doing something different than you were doing before. But again, now, it's a minority. I mean, but I mean, all of that information, it, it might be a minority right now, but I would imagine as the database grows and you get more and more information, you're able to analyze and be able to get more of that genetic information is that you're, you're exploring more, but you're learning more. But as a as a pediatrician, precision medicine probably guides quite a bit as as you get more artificial intelligence and you're gaining more of that knowledge. Are are you applying it more? I mean, are, are you finding out more information year after year that becomes more applicable? Is this exciting within your field right now that you're able to find usable information that you can then say, you know what, even on medicines? This becomes something that I just found this out utilizing genetic tests maybe I won't be utilizing these these medicines or these pharmaceutical treatments because it, it just isn't applicable because of the genetic makeup of this particular individual. Are you finding these things as well? So um, as you're alluding to, when it comes to these rare conditions, I'll just give you a example to be able to put this in context. Many of the genetic conditions that we ultimately diagnose associated with autism have a population frequency of about 1 in 50,000 to 1 in 100,000. So they're not very common conditions. Many of these, I and others have diagnosed the first person in the world with this. So recognize the first person. And once you recognize it, you start to recognize other people around the world. And in fact, um, I have a sister study called Simon's Searchlight. Um, and that is something that's defined based on the gene, based on the genetic condition, but it's open to people around the world who have that same genetic diagnosis 
for us to come together and go through the process of what you said, learn from each other, share back with each other, be able to get more precise in terms of what to expect and how to treat individuals, how to think about learning strategies, other supports um, that will be able to help people achieve more. Um, in some cases, whether or not to look for epilepsy and treat epilepsy and try and prevent seizures that can have their own uh, problems associated with that. So um, within that, oftentimes that timeline from going to the very first patient in the world to having a large enough number of people that you can actually start to say things, it takes some time. And so in the older days, it might take five or 10 years. Uh, in a good way, we're accelerating that process. We're getting to critical mass faster. And we have, um, I know this will sound really silly, but in the old days, we didn't even have you know, Facebook to be able to find each other or, you know, Google to be able to find a website about these conditions, like being able to just crawl around the web and find out information was hard to do in the early days. So even though you might know something, it wasn't being disseminated very widely. Um, now we have great things where we literally have on the weekends, oftentimes I'll do a WebEx with families for these rare conditions where I'll share back with them everything we know about your condition. We can have a dialogue uh, for people around the world to be able to share this. They can bring up things that I was not appreciative of in terms of what they're seeing, and it helps to guide the research agenda about what do we need to look at what do we need to delve into you know, more deeply? And the, the learning cycle, the iteration in terms of doing this is just so much faster and so much more widespread because you can do what we're doing now, um, being able to just talk to people around the world and that barrier, the cost to doing that is negligible. Um, I mean, clearly you need to have Wi-Fi and I, I get that not everyone has access to that, but more and more people do. So with that, um, we have realized, and, and again, I wanna, be careful not to think that either everyone needs this or wants this, uh, nor is it available to everyone yet. Um, but for certain conditions um, associated with autism and genetic forms, I've even seen neurodegeneration. So circumstances in which it's not simply, um, you know, you have autism and it's stable and it's something, you know, you adapt and, and you learn to be able to, um, make adaptations, but there are certain thankfully rare conditions where things actually um, get lost over time. People lose skills, literally use, lose brain cells even over time, and rarely, but some of these can even be lethal. Um, some of these can actually be fatal. Many cases, not for young children, but you know, with time, not being able to live as full a life as we would want. And so for those conditions, we've really doubled down in terms of developing treatments with some sense of urgency, because we do feel as if there's a limited uh, amount of time we have to be able to get in before the brain is degenerating, and we wanna be able to prevent that. And so to your point about precision medicine, we have to know what the gene is to be able to know what to target. We have to even be on the gene, know exactly what the DNA sequence is in many cases to be able to target that. And we have to be able to get in as early as we can to have the best outcome. And so a lot of my work also now is geared towards earlier and more precise diagnosis so that we can enable this precision medicine, um, more precise expectations, more precise supports in some cases, more precise even in terms of medical or genetically based therapies, but we still have a long way to go. It's not there for the majority of individuals with autism. 
And then the final thing I'll say is that for the majority of individuals with autism who do not have a genetic diagnosis, I think there are just incredible things we can do in terms of technologies, training, and again, I think earlier is better in terms of recognizing these challenges so that people aren't so frustrated with you know, learning in a different way or connecting with people in a different way that we can help them earlier, both to recognize that and give them supports that'll allow them to be able to just not get as frustrated by the fact that they may do things differently or think differently, and that's perfectly fine. Uh, but we want to be able to have them just, you know, feel full, feel joy, um, be able to really um, do the things that are so special about them. And, and being able to help get rid of that frustration earlier, I think, is better. No, absolutely. And I mean, I remember it must have been eight, nine years ago as um, when Spark had reached out to a variety of different organizations just to start recruiting some participants to be a part of the, the database that was being built out and to have come to the point right now where there's so much information and, and you've seen some of the results that have come up from it and even just the product of Searchlight coming from that. It's such a, a cool advancement that's come from all of the participation of so many people out there to be able to move things along. How do we continue to get that active involvement from the community and what is the continued benefit from those who maybe are trying to say, what is it that maybe putting my child out there and saying, uh, having them contribute to some of these studies and maybe not seeing right now the benefit to them directly, but down the line to others, why would they participate in some of the, the studies that are going on right now on the genetic research? Yeah. Um, so let me say a couple of things. Number one is that Spark does have a genetic component to it, but um, it's not exclusively genetics and it's in fact not even the majority of genetics. Um, we've grown and expanded in so many ways, including something we call Research Match, which is the ability for the research community to actually partner uh, with the autism community and for individuals who are in Spark to be able to, I call it choose your own adventure, but to be able to hear about research studies and decide um, one by one whether they'd like to participate or not. And within that, they're, they're in control, but it expands then uh, their reach as a participant in terms of being able to power the research that they think is important in going forward. Within that, I'm excited to say that um, number one, uh, many different researchers have come forward with many different things that they think are important and the community has uh, said are important, everything from sleep uh, to problems with focus to differences between males and females to differences over the life course. And people, some people have been in Spark long enough that we can now start to see them growing up in different challenges that you had when you were seven or eight when you first came in than as an adolescent and some of the changes um, that are going on now. Um, we saw, for instance, because we were um, already a community during COVID, uh, we were able to instantaneously almost be able to understand the impact of COVID on our community of individuals with autism. And you can, you know, think back, and I know it feels like forever ago in some ways, you know, that instantaneous change in our social structure and our educational system we were able to demonstrate had a really uh, more so than for the rest of the world, I think for individuals with autism had a much bigger impact. And by doing that very quickly and getting the data out there, 
was I think one of the most impactful things that Spark has done in terms of practicality because individuals in the federal government saw that information and saw that emerging literally in real time and were able to take and understand that and realize when we did come out of lockdown, we actually had room to that we had to make up that time. And so that actually got built in at many either federal levels, state levels, local levels in terms of being able to bring that gap back up. And so it's those things that I think are important, even a very practical day-to-day -day way. And it allows individuals to be able to be part of that, to have their voice heard, to make sure they're represented, not to be left behind. And we've especially worked in, in terms of increasing the diversity of who's represented in Spark so that we are making sure that all voices are heard. And so whether you're in a rural place, whether you're in the city, whether you're in the north, south, east or west, no matter what the color of your skin is or where your family roots are traced back to, we have tried very hard by increasing the languages, by increasing in terms of just help and support to be able to get folks registered all different ways, because I do think it's a different experience, for instance, if you're a black man with autism than if you're an Asian woman with autism or a five-year-old versus a 15 or 50-year-old. And so within that, Spark has no age limitations. Um, we want to be able to include everyone, but we are in it for the long term. And I want to emphasize that things change over time. And having seen those changes over time, I think we can help in terms of understanding what levers can we pull, for instance, in young people that might ultimately help in terms of those trajectories and things that we'll see later on. And, and so we're dedicated to that. We're dedicated to what we do now, helping the next generation. And we even have studies of what I call baby siblings. Um, so by that, I mean individuals who are newborns and the younger siblings of individuals with autism so that we can help to understand that next, you know, little brother, little sister who's coming up and be able to support them and those families as well. So. The, the nice thing about this is, like I said, we have so many dedicated individuals and families who are standing up and, and able to be part of understanding and building knowledge to build solutions uh, together and solutions that matter. Well, Wendy, I mean, this sounds like the, the perfect intersection for, you know, the collaboration between the neurodiverse community, researchers, clinicians, families, and everybody to be involved in the advancement of, you know, the, the research and in treatment and in the discussions that need to be out there. How is this collaboration? How is that being facilitated? I mean, how how are we making sure that these conversations are occurring and that and that we're getting that information out there? Yeah, it, it's a great point. Um, so the first thing I'll say is that we started out by being, I think, very thoughtful and planning. And from the very first day that we even came up with the idea, had individuals with autism and families of individuals with autism at the planning table, at the planning stages, we tried to make sure that from the very beginning, we were thoughtful in terms of different perspectives and have individuals, everything from the research agenda to how we present things, um, the visuals that we use, um, things that are not too overwhelming in terms of stimulation. I mean, we try to be thoughtful. We're never perfect, but we try and be thoughtful about all of these. So we have individuals, we have a community advisory council. Um, within this, we have young people, adults with autism, 
Um, we have their parents, their other family members. We have on our staff always within the staff on a day-to-day -day basis, individuals with autism, family members of individuals with autism. But we do this so that at every meeting we have, every decision that we make, it's with that input um, that we make those decisions. When we have these research match studies that I talked about, we have our community advisory council give us input on every single one of those studies that comes through and they help it make it make it better. They they think, you know, collectively about what would a participant think about this? Is this presented in the right way? Is there something I can do to make it better? And that collaborative nature in terms of iteratively making things better um, is what makes us best. Then when it comes back to the other side, as we're communicating out these results, I set a very high bar with researchers. If you're gonna work with us, you've got to be able to communicate these results back out to the participants and to the Spark audience at large. And so that's an absolute requirement. And we have what we call research snapshots to be able to get this information out in lay language. So not in gobbledygook that's in the journals, but in language that hopefully everyone understands. We hire professional editors to double check us and make sure that we're accessible in terms of that language. And I think um, I've learned over time how to be able to be more understandable, I hope, as we're doing this. And sometimes it's hard. The The concepts are, are even for me, hard concepts in fields that, that are not first uh, nature to me. But we work very hard in doing that. And the, the fun thing about it, I think, is that, like I said, the, the individuals participating help set the research agenda um, by hearing, I'll just give you an example, by hearing that sleep is an issue, and, and many of you, not all of you, but sleep is an issue, we now have studies, believe it or not, where we are directly in people's homes uh, for participants who want to uh, do this, monitoring sleep, like literally, you know, wearing devices to see how people are sleeping and to be able to understand if people are getting a good night's sleep and how that correlates with behaviors and learning the next day um, is just, you know, maybe it sounds like it's intuitive, um, but being able to now think about how important that is, if it is, for and for whom it's important, and then how to be able to treat issues with sleep, we hope will help individuals be able to, like I said, just learn better, feel better, be better. Uh, intuitive, but doesn't always mean that it's being done. And I love the fact that you all are out there getting it done. It's, I mean, the Simons Foundation is involved in so many wonderful projects. I mean, what are the ones that are exciting you the most right now? I mean, you you already kind of jumped the gun and gave me one of them, but I mean, what are some of the other ones that we should kind of keep our eyes out there for? Yeah. Uh, so the Simons Foundation, in addition to Spark and Searchlight, um, actually funds a wide portfolio of researchers who are actually doing that work. So actually, you know, paying for the research to be done. There's everything from, um, for instance, being able to model brain cells in a dish um, so they can take, for instance, a blood cell from a person, transform those cells into brain cells in a dish to be able to understand how are those cells working together? How are they connecting? How are they developing? And you don't have to, the wonderful thing, you don't have to do a brain biopsy, right? And, uh, you know, with that, you can actually understand how those things are happening. In some cases, they also fund, you know, not just a cell in a dish is still not uh, a brain, um, but you can make basically mini brains, uh, believe it or not. You can allow those cells to grow up and to form, they're not quite perfect brains, but they form what they call, what we call organoids. And in some cases, when you need other models, especially to be able to test treatments, um, you need living being or living organisms rather, I should say. And I know it sounds a little silly, but those uh, living organisms sometimes are flies, sometimes can be mice, uh, sometimes can be rats, um, but other things to be able to help us understand exactly how the brain is working. And 
those are very important models as we get to, again, uh, I just want to emphasize not everyone needs or wants treatment, but for some of the very, very severe conditions that are associated with epilepsy, uh, individuals who are nonverbal, maybe self-injurious, being able to have a model where you can test some of the new therapies in a way that's safe to people because we first try it in a model organism, a rat, a mouse, uh, something else first, um, is just really important uh, before we put something first into a person. Um, and so those are all the exciting things. Looking at some of the new treatment modalities, things that are genetically based, um, things that at least for certain, again, genetic forms are actually correcting the underlying genetic basis and understanding what's our window of treatment. So when I went, talked about PKU, you know, what's our window of uh, ability to be able to go through and how much can we ameliorate depending on when over the life course we do that. Do you have any current projects that you have ongoing right now that we should keep our eyes out for? We do. So um, the one that, um, again, and I just want to set expectations, uh, it's a rare condition, but we have a rare condition called KIF-1A associated neurological disorder, and about 25% of those individuals have autism. Um, that was one of those conditions that I said is I find really tough because it's degenerative. Um, individuals literally uh, their brain is, they're losing their brain over time. We're losing brain cells and we're losing parts of the brain and has ultimately been, uh, in my own personal experience, I've lost many patients to this condition. Um, but we have started trying what we call an ASO, um, which we can um, manipulate the bad version of that particular gene and basically get rid of it. Um, and this ASO, we have to be able to get to the brain. So it gets injected into the space where we put an epidural for, for the ladies who may have had that with labor, um, but the, that space uh, right around the spinal cord. And then it goes from there to float around the brain. And uh, we only have treated one patient. So it's very, very, very early days. I wanna emphasize that. But within our first patient, uh, look like we're being able, we're making progress in terms of being able to decrease the number of seizures, being able to increase the amount of uh, verbal fluency, uh, increase cognition, improve thinking, and even go from uh, individuals who couldn't walk um, to individuals who are able to walk independently and regain some skills. So the next phases for us are trying to understand, was this just, you know, one person, but uh, does it, you know, can we replicate it? Do we see the same effect as we treat more people? And so that's the phase that we're starting now and um, keeping our fingers crossed to be able to know for this community, uh, how generalizable is that going to be? And then how can we take that same strategy potentially for other conditions? And, and I think this is but one of many different tools we're going to use. But uh, important, I think, to give families some hope that we are making progress a uh, little bit at a time. I think that's a wonderful hope to have. But I think it's also kind of giving that idea to families that every time that they contribute in any way, whether it's being a participant in a study, whether it's um, helping to um, maybe involve themselves in some of the genetic research, whatever step they make to be able to help some of the science that's occurring is that they're moving along the process. They're helping that particular patient that you're working with right now on this groundbreaking research and that they're a part of this in some way. And I mean, that's a big, that's a big thing. They might not be the one coming up with that science but they contribute. And that's a big part of this whole process. Um, do you have any, any advice to, to families as far as when they're, when they're feeling, you know, 
overwhelmed about the process because you have had the chance to kind of go through the the entirety. You've you've talked parents kind of about you know the genetic piece to autism. You've talked with them about processing everything from the medical the medical pieces that maybe are more severe that impact the family's life to maybe some of the the less severe but maybe some of the behavioral pieces that are going to influence the way that maybe you have to navigate your day but do you have any advice for families about you know the the way that research could benefit their child's life with autism and how that could set aside maybe the steps or the lives of other people just by maybe even on the treatments and just by being a part of any of these studies that are happening with Spark or happening with Simon's Foundation, just by being a part of that. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, we all have challenges. Uh, let me just say that. And I think we all have something to learn from each other as we're doing this. And the more of us that put our heads together, literally, I think the faster we're going to come up with solutions. Um, I don't think the solutions are going to be the same for everyone. And I think everyone's got something both that they can contribute and something that they, that they can learn. Um, and so in doing this, it's a matter of, uh, I get impatient um, in terms of time. And I think for many of our families, they have the same. They'd like to be able to have answers today, not answers tomorrow. And so the faster that we can all put our heads together and be able to efficiently go through that information and find those answers, the faster we're going to get there. Um, as we're doing this, I, I also think that in a good way, technology is changing very rapidly in so many different dimensions. And I know this will sound very cliche, but it is we are able to ingest more information and more data and make sense of it because it's not just as we're community coming together. It's not each one of us trying to process this. We're literally using um, machine learning, artificial intelligence to see patterns that we might not have seen before. And so I do think what are starting to emerge are within this, again, precision medicine or, or precision autism type of idea, some patterns emerging about clustering of what might work better over here or what might work better over there. Um, but it's only as good as the information you put in. And so if we all do our little piece in terms of putting that information in, I hope we'll all be getting something out. Um, it takes time, and, and I know it's hard to be patient for that, but I also have been so impressed at just how much people feel like they are part of the community. Like even if they can't help their own child or their own self today, it's this hope that for the future, they'll be able to together um, be more than we are as individuals. And that's what we're dedicated to doing, helping to facilitate uh, for everyone to be able to do their part. Yeah, and I, and I echo that. I mean, from the community understanding, the medical understanding and the treatment understanding is that having those data points, having the ability to aggregate that and be able to look the, at the broad picture is so empowering and it gives us direction. So, um, and what sort of resources are, are you recommending? I mean, what what's out there even for clinicians to be able to look at to start understanding the, the big picture a little bit better, better as far as the current research that's out there that they could be referencing and to be educating themselves on? Yeah. So I think um, in many ways, uh, I'm going to start sort of from the beginning of life. I think we're realizing uh, more and more how important early childhood development is, early brain development, and um, you know, early factors, even including things like screen time and how people are 
learning to interact. Uh, and I say this because I do think our world is changing around us and uh, it does become incredibly important, I think, to be able to recognize even when infants, toddlers, young children are struggling in some way to be able to help um, support them so that they don't end up with basically what are workarounds that end up being disadvantageous to them in the long term. Um, recognizing, for instance, when there are problems with attention and being able to take care of those problems, recognizing when there are problems with vision and taking care of those issues. But it, it's so that you don't you lose critical periods where the brain is developing and, again, where you're developing, you know, the ways you're going to learn, learning how to learn and being able to set that up. Um, but I do think there are, um, you know, additional ways in a good way that technology can support people. So individuals who might not have the best fine motor skills and where that might be difficult, uh, no offense, but penmanship is not gonna be the most important thing because you can type, you can talk to text, you can do all sorts of other things. Um, for individuals who may have difficulty in terms of reading, um, there are lots of ways to be able to have things read to you with technology now and support that. But recognizing that early and being able to get those individuals, those supports, I think are important. Um, lots of ways for individuals to be more independent. And, you know, I think of some individuals, for instance, who um, driving may have been hard for them and they may not have gotten to the point where they were driving, but want to be independent, want to have a job, want to be able to go. And public transportation may not be the easiest thing for them, but there are increasing ways of being able to, and I'm not saying it's, I realize it's not uh not free, um, but there are ways to take an Uber when you really need to take an Uber and to be able to have someone help you if you need that help or uh, increasing ways, as I said, in terms of public transportation being more predictable in terms of when a train is going to be coming, scheduling your time so that you can, again, know what to expect and not be surprised by these things. And so I think all of those things that help you structure, help predict, help other people support you in areas where you might need a little bit of help, um, just help you get through the day and help make, you know, give you that security to be able to be your best self. And um, so within all of those things, I think there are, you know, challenges sometimes when people get isolated. I think that's something we all have to be careful about um, because I think it is easier these days to be isolated, um, but in a good way, um, Hopefully we've got friends to be able to give us a hand. And I appreciate that. And the advice that you just gave on being able to find those things within the resources that are available to you to be able to accommodate, to be able to make your life that much more beneficial and to be able to kind of ease those things that are that are blocks. Those aren't autistic specific things. Those are things that we can all take advantage of. And that's the inclusive. That's that's looking at, you know, most of these things we talk about on this podcast, when you break it down, they're beneficial to all of us. And it's just taking the pieces of it. And this is another good example. But I appreciate you taking the time today, Dr. Chung, to talk with us, to explore all these wonderful things that are happening within the research world. Um, and, and giving us your information and, and being able to kind of take that time to be able to walk us through it. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jeff. And for anyone who wants to join Spark for Autism, uh, please join us and just Google Spark for Autism and you'll find our website. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more.
Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.